All right. Well, this morning we're going to be doing something a bit uh, a bit different. Um, we've been working through John 17, as you know, which is Christ's closing prayer to the upper room, and we've been encountering some pretty incredible statements through this prayer, and we've been encountering similar things throughout the Gospel of of John. And Jesus has been praying for the people the Father has given to him. And he is uh, praying that uh, the Father's plans will be accomplished in in this hour. So this morning, I just want to hit the pause button. Um, In light of some of the things we've we've studied in this chapter and throughout John, I want us to sort of take a step back and try to bring all of of this data together um, from, from John. I want to be sure that we don't miss some stunning implications of what these texts are, are telling us. I want to be sure that we don't misunderstand what Jesus and John are, are teaching us. I mentioned last week that the truths from John 17 that we've been bumping up against are related to a doctrine which is sometimes referred to as limited atonement. So who in here has heard of limited atonement? Big, nasty, scary word, right? Nobody likes that, that word. But as we'll see, it's actually not a very helpful or accurate description. And we're going to discuss this a bit more next week, but because everybody limits the atonement. Unless you are a universalist who believes everybody will be saved, everyone limits the atonement. So that's not a helpful title to slap on this doctrine. Rather, a, a better title to call this is the doctrine of definite atonement or particular redemption. And that's what I want to talk about. Yeah, Mark. Then, uh, tulip would be yeah, it would be tulip, but that would, that would mess things up. So. <laughs> so I'll let you work on getting a better acronym, all right? So that's exactly right. So definite atonement. Or particular, uh, particular redemption. So I've entitled this, this lesson, we're going to be doing this this week and next week as well, taken from John Murray's classic work, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. A theological examination of the extent and efficacy of the atonement. So I thought it would just be helpful to, to take a step back and uh, consider this, this topic. While we're talking about books... John Murray's book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, is certainly a great one to read if you haven't. wanted to introduce you to a couple other really helpful books. This one I would recommend to everybody in here. It is by J.I. Packer and Mark Dever called In My Place, Condemned He Stood, uh, Treatment, Celebrating the Glory of the Atonement. Excellent, just about the atonement in general, but getting into some of the stuff we, we talked about, we're going to talk about today. So... Great book here. If you want to dive deeply into this topic and want to uh, really think hard, this is a great book here. From Heaven He Came and Sought Her, Definite Atonement in Historical, Biblical, Theological, and Pastoral Perspective, edited by J.I. Packer and a number of contributors. Very uh, very helpful book here. Um, so there's a couple of resources if you're interested in digging more deeply into this topic. So this week and next week, we're going to be doing a short detour to examine uh, the Gospel of John and the rest of Scripture to see what this what this doctrine teaches. And it's going to be impossible to do a comprehensive study. We could spend many weeks on this. 
The goal will simply be to, be, to do an overview and explain what we mean, why this is important, and how it should affect um, our lives. And you may be wondering, well, Michael, why in the world do a study on this doctrine at all? I mean, it seems that the only thing this doctrine is good for is stirring up divisions, right? Like, is it good for anything else? But I hope that by the end of the study, you'll see that it's biblical and also that it's very important. It will shape the way you think about the gospel, about your salvation, about evangelism, the Christian life. All of these things depend on getting this doctrine right. So the goal of this study is not just that you would have more knowledge and be able to win some theological debates, but that we would be changed, have more godly living, that we would know the love of Christ and the glory of Christ in the cross. So here's the plan for this week and next. I want to begin by defining the doctrine of definite atonement and describe how this doctrine differs from other common understandings of the atonement. Then I want to give some reasons why his atonement must be understood as definite um, and why alternatives' understandings fail to line up with the Bible. And then next week, I I hope to get into some problem passages, things that, passages that sound contradictory to this doctrine, wrestle through those with you, and then I'll try to apply it to our lives. So it's ambitious to try to get through all this in two weeks. We're going to do our best. So get us going want to define our terms really quickly. As I'm going through here, I don't know if we'll have time for questions. If you have questions, jot them down, and we'll try to have a time to to work through them. What do we mean by definite atonement? So here are some essential questions that this doctrine is, is trying to answer. For whom did Christ die on the cross? And what did Christ's cross accomplish for them? So what is the aim of Christ's cross? And what is the effect of Christ's cross? That's what we're trying to answer, those two questions. Did the death of Christ simply make possible the redemption of people? Or did it do something more? Did Christ intend to die for every single person so as to make possible their salvation, which would then be theirs upon the exercise of their faith? Or did Christ die for a specific people and make certain their salvation, which includes the gift of faith? And as you could probably tell from the way I framed the questions, my argument is going to be the latter of those two options. His death did something more than simply make redemption possible for every single person. His death accomplished something. It guaranteed the complete salvation of a particular people. So the main point we're going to be making is this. Christ is a redeemer who really does redeem. He's a redeemer who really does redeem. He's not a redeemer who simply makes salvation a possibility, which then man needs to do his part to make it apply to himself. Rather, the cross secured the salvation 
of all of his own, including their very believing. It did not make redemption possible for everyone, but only effectual to those who by their own efforts believe it. It made redemption guaranteed for all his own, and it was effectual to save them, including the gift of faith. So here's my definition. The doctrine of definite atonement teaches that Christ died as a substitute atoning sacrifice for a specific group of people, whereby he accomplished all that was necessary for the redemption of God's elect and through it guaranteed the salvation of each and every one of them. So this is quite different from the common Arminian position which states that Christ died with the intent of saving every single person which says that his cross atoned for the sin of every person but that the benefits of the death are only experienced by some in other words Christ's death only accomplished the potential for salvation that's the common presentation Now, we're going to see this morning that it is absolutely true that his death is experienced only by those who believe. All right? Everybody affirms that. Calvinists and Arminians, you got to believe. You don't believe, you don't have the benefits of Christ's death. We're not denying that. But I believe that Christ's death did something more than simply make salvation a possibility. It made certain the salvation of those he was going to die for so christ's death as you know was fundamentally what what was fundamental in his atonement it was substitutionary right it was a substitutionary atonement it took the place of sinners christ died so that you would not have to he satisfied the wrath of god in the place of sinners by taking god's judgment upon himself so isaiah 53 a good example But as we're going to see this morning, Christ did not die as a substitute for an imaginary people, for a non-defined, foggy, vague people out there. He died as a substitute for a specific, defined group of people, a chosen, covenant people. And he really died as their substitute. He died in their place. He bore the penalty for their sins. He satisfied God's wrath instead of them. And here's the key. He did that before any of them believed in him. And he did it in order to secure their faith in him. So that is what we we mean. His substitutionary death accomplished and guaranteed their salvation, redemption, and eternal life, and everything else in the order of salvation. So think about as you experience salvation, regeneration, faith, repentance, perseverance, sanctification, glorification, all of these things as you experience in the Christian life, they are all the results of what Christ accomplished for you on the cross as a substitute sacrifice. 
But people who would like to say that Christ died as a substitute and atoned for the sin of every single person runs into some serious difficulties. If that's the case, then you must conclude that every single person will be saved and not judged. You must be a universalist. right? But that's denied everywhere in Scripture. Or if you don't want to be a universalist, then you must conclude that Christ ultimately failed in what he was intending to do. He was intending to atone for the sin of every person, but his death was not enough. It needed to be added to by the response of man to make it effectual. In other words, it could not guarantee the salvation of any. The best it could do was stand back and hope that man on his own could make the atonement effectual. But I want to show you this morning from Scripture four basic basic points here. Number one, my argument will be that Christ atoned for a specific group of people satisfying God's wrath and removing God's judgment for them. Number two, everyone for whom he did this will be saved. Number three, faith is the essential means whereby the benefits of Christ's death are applied to the sinner. So that must be faith. But then number four, even that faith is the result of Christ's work on their behalf. And all for whom Christ died will come to saving faith. All right, so now that we've defined what we mean and what we do not mean by definite atonement, let me move on by asking our next question here. Why should we believe that Christ's atonement is definite? By definite, I mean two things. It's particular, and it is effectual. Right? Definite, it's particular, it's aimed, it's focused on a certain group, and it's effectual. It, it accomplishes what it intends to accomplish so do the scriptures teach that how do the scriptures teach that and what teachings of scripture are contradicted if we deny this doctrine so i got a lot of material here don't know if we'll get through it if we don't we will roll over into next week number one christ's atonement must be definite because this is the clear teaching of scripture Um, so that's the first reason why I think we need to affirm it, because I think Scripture, especially John, teaches it. So this morning, we're going to limit our focus to the Gospel of John. We could go many places, but we've already done the exegesis in this Gospel. So we're just going to go back and try to collect some of the data we've seen. So in order to make this point, I want to do a, a brief survey of the Gospel of John and ask two questions. According to John, for whom did Jesus die? Who did he intend to save through his cross, according to John? And, according to John, what did Jesus accomplish in his death for these people? All right, so those are the two questions we're going to bring and ask John. And to answer it, the first thing I want to do is compare the teaching of chapter 17, where we've been, with chapter 10. Very similar passages, and I'll try to pull out the parallels and draw some conclusions so number one from these chapters we learn the father has given a people to the son 
for him to give them eternal life. John 17, 2, Jesus prays, Since you, Father, have given him, the Son, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you've given to him. So the Father's given a people to the Son so that the Son, through his cross, would give them eternal life. Chapter 10, Jesus says of his sheep, I give them eternal life. They'll never perish. I give all of them, all my sheep. Well, who are these sheep? My Father, who has given them to me. Same same truth. The Father's given a people to the Son for him to give them eternal life. Next, not all belong to Christ's people. John 17, 9, I am praying for them, this people. I am not praying for the world. I'm not praying for everybody. I'm praying for those you've given me from the world. Clearly, not everybody has been given to the Son. Chapter 10, verse 26, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. He's talking to the unbelieving Pharisees. Not all belong to Christ's people. Number three, all of those the Father has given to the Son will certainly believe in the Son. We saw this last week. I've manifested your name to the people you've given me out of the world. Yours they were. You gave them to me. And they have kept your word. All of them. That's what they do. Chapter 10, verse 26. The sheep hear his voice. That's what sheep do. They hear the shepherd's voice. Verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. So this must imply that one becomes part of this flock before they exercise saving faith. You see that? Their faith is the result of being a sheep. It is not the reason why they are a sheep. And that now helps us to understand number four. The son lays down his life for that flock the father has given him to give them eternal life through his cross. We're going to see this in a couple weeks, 17, 19. For their sake, I consecrate myself. For their sake, consecrate myself to the point of the cross. Chapter 10, verse 11, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You can see it in 15, 13 as well. Finally, number five, his sheep include those who will be brought to faith, who are scattered throughout the Gentile world. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me. That's what he's going to pray. John 10, 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So how does this answer? How does this answer our, our questions? For whom did Jesus die? And what did Jesus' death accomplish? Answer? Jesus' death secured, made certain, accomplished all that was necessary for the eternal life of the people the Father has given to the Son in eternity past 
for him to redeem. All those for whom the Son died certainly come to possess eternal life. This includes the subsequent faith of these individuals, which is likewise certain. So that's a comparison between chapter 17 and chapter chapter 10. Still probably some gaps, though. So I want to now take another step back and think of the Gospel of John as a whole. All right? And we're asking, what did Jesus' death accomplish according to John? So we've already seen it specific for the people the Father's given to him. That people was given to him in eternity past. It's not contingent on the faith, but the reason for their faith. But what did he accomplish for them? Let me show you four things. Number one, his death would take away sin through his atoning sacrifice. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God directs us back to all the sacrificial lambs in the Old Testament. And it also points us back to Isaiah 53, the servant who is going to be like a lamb and atone for the sins of God's people. As the Lamb of God, Christ would die as a substitute to bear the guilt of his people, satisfying the judgment of God and providing complete forgiveness and spiritual cleansing. But you might be thinking, well, Michael, this verse contradicts what you've been saying. I mean, it's right there. I got you. He's doing this for the world, right? He died to take away the sin of the world, not the elect. But if you've been tracking with us through the Gospel of John, you know that the word world never, never refers to every single individual in the world. It never has. The word world in John carries two basic nuances. Who remembers one of them? We've said it probably a hundred times. The world is what? The system of rebellious humanity. The system of humanity which is in rebellion to its maker. So for instance, John 3.16. God so loved the world. What makes that verse so astonishing is not the size of the world or the number of people in the world, but the condition of the world. He loved the world, the very world that is in rebellion to him. That's the nuance of John 3.16. That's what makes it so spectacular and astonishing. God so loved this kind of world that hates him. So that's one nuance of this word world. The other nuance of the word world Again, doesn't mean every single person without exception, but all people without distinction. That is, Jew and Gentile. All kinds of people. All nations. And I think John is combining both of those nuances here in John 1, 29. Jesus is the Lamb of God who's come to deal with the sin of rebellious humanity by atoning for it. And he's come to do it not for Jews only, but for people from every nation. And this is exactly what we see in the throne room, isn't it? Revelation 5, 9, they sing a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll 
and open its seals, for you were slain like a lamb. And by your blood you ransomed people, individual people, from every tribe and nation and people and language. That's what Christ accomplished. He atoned for sin for people from every nation and redeemed them by his sacrifice. Number two, his death would provide eternal life for believers. John three fourteen to 15, he's lifted up as Moses is lifted up the serpent, so the Son of Man must be lifted up on the cross. Whoever believes in him might have eternal life. And it says something similar in chapter 6. In other words, his cross would accomplish everything that's necessary to provide e- eternal life. And the way that's experienced is through dependent faith on Christ. Again, everybody affirms that. You must rest in Christ, trust in him. No one denies that point, but the point we're making is his death accomplished, provided eternal life for believers. What else does John tell us? Well, number three, his death would inaugurate the new covenant promises and blessings for his people. I've got a lot of information here. Let's, let me go kind of quickly through this. John seven thirty nine. Jesus talks about the gift of the Spirit, the new covenant promise of the coming Spirit would come only after he's glorified, after he's accomplished his cross and returns to heaven. His cross inaugurates the new covenant promises. We see this in Luke twenty-two twenty. the new covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood. Christ's sacrifice inaugurates and ushers in and secures all the new covenant promises. Hebrews twelve twenty-four. he's the mediator of a new covenant. Now, why is that significant? Well, what were some of the promises of the new covenant? Well, certainly there's the gift of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But there's also promises like this. Jeremiah 24, 7. I will give them a new heart. And they will know that I am the Lord. They shall be my people. They'll return to me. Ezekiel 36. I'll sprinkle them with clean water and you'll be clean. And I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Divine heart surgery, regeneration, the gift of repentance and faith are all the promises of the new covenant which Christ secured through his blood. Which is exactly what Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3, 5. His death would inaugurate the new covenant promises for his people, which includes... Regeneration, which includes faith. Finally, his death would draw and gather people from all over the world to himself and into his covenant people. His death didn't just atone for sin, it was powerful in bringing people to himself. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. His cross effectually draws. This word for draw is the same word that was used for the Father back in chapter 6, where it says the Father draws people to Christ. The word is drags. He effectually brings them to Christ. And there, Jesus says, everyone the Father does that for 
responds by faith in Christ. And it's the same word used here for Jesus. Everyone that he draws through his cross responds. They believe. It's an effectual drawing. And again, this word all certainly cannot refer to every single person without exception. Number one, because he doesn't draw everybody like that. And number two, because the context clearly highlights the all here is all kinds of people, all nations, the Greeks who are in this who are in this passage. In other words, the death of Christ is effectual to gather his chosen sheep from all nations into his new covenant people. His death not only atoned for sin, it was effectual and powerful to produce all that was necessary to bring these people to faith. So let me put everything together here. What does John tell us? How does John answer these questions? John tells us that Christ was given a people for whom he came to die to give them eternal life. His death for them was effectual and powerful because it completely atoned for their sin, gave them eternal life, and secured their faith in him. Christ's death was particular in his aim for his sheep, and it was effectual in its results. He gave them eternal life. So I think that's how John would answer those those two questions. But I want to give another answer here. Why should we believe that Christ's atonement is, is definite? And we're just going to cover one more, and then we'll save the last one for next week. The first answer we gave is because it's taught in Scripture. I think it's clearly affirmed by the Apostle John. Second, Christ's atonement must be definite because the unity of the Trinity is at stake. We've seen the unity of the Trinity throughout the Gospel of John, haven't we? It's over and over again. The Father is the ultimate source. He initiates, plans, purposes, ordains, directs. And then the Son is always in complete submission to the Father. He does all that the Father gives him to do, and he does only what the Father gives him to do, right? And then the Spirit is sent by the Son and the Father to then apply what Christ accomplished. So you can summarize it very simply like this. The Father plans, the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit applies. And this can be applied directly to the work and the plan of redemption. The Father gives the Son a people to redeem. The Son comes and dies to accomplish their redemption. And the Spirit comes to apply the work by the new birth, by giving all of these Christ died for faith, eternal life, coming to the Son. In other words, the triune God is unified in all that he does. But here's the key. If we suggest that Christ's atonement was universal or that Christ intended to accomplish the redemption of every single person, or that Christ's atonement was general with no specific aim at all, then we run into some very serious issues here, don't we? The Father gives the Son a specific people, but the Son instead dies with the intention of redeeming every single person, doing something contrary to the Father's plan, or with the intention of redeeming nobody in particular. Well, that's significant. 
Or the Spirit comes and gives life and regeneration and faith in Christ to certain individuals. But he does not do it for all those that Christ wanted him to do it for, that Christ intended to do it for. So you have some major issues. So one solution would simply be to deny that the Father's actually chosen a people and given them to the Son. Deny that the Spirit effectually causes people to be born again. You could deny those things, and that's what most people do to resolve this tension. But as we've seen in John, you have to do some pretty fancy maneuvering to get out from some of the clear teaching and implications of these texts, which teach just the opposite of that. Or the other solution, you could affirm that there is indeed disunity in the Trinity. The Son is a bit more benevolent, a bit more loving. Father is mean and harsh, angry. The Spirit is stingy. But the Son, man, he is full of of love and compassion, and he wants it to be even wider. You could do that, but that is bordering blasphemy. So those are your two options. So I think this is second answer is, is a very significant one as we see the Gospel of John. The unity of the Trinity, of all of their workings, tell us um, that Christ's atonement had to be definite, particular in its aim, and effectual in its, in its power. Christ died for those the Father gave him. The Spirit applies the work of Christ by granting the new birth and faith and in repentance. So next week, we will tackle the the third one here. Why should we believe um, that Christ's atonement is definite? Christ's atonement must be definite because the unity of his priesthood demands it. And we'll examine um, some of the the background of of a priest, what he did, and how how that applies to Christ. So we are out of time. I'm sure there are many questions that you have. Um, Try to answer those next week. If you have questions now, I'd love to talk to you about them this morning. Uh, But I hope this has got your wheels turning. And uh, come back next week and we will try to apply it uh, to our lives and see why it's so, so important. All right, let's pray. Gracious Father, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ, our great Redeemer, victorious Messiah, Savior of his people. Thank you for our salvation, which is grace, grace, grace. We love you. May our hearts be filled with love and worship and praise to you. And it's in the name of your Son we pray. Amen.